Hey, welcome, everybody. We're so glad you're with us. I'm Jason McKnight, and I'm alongside Ben Hendricks. Ben, nice to have you. Always a pleasure. It's always fun to do this with you. And I love this one, especially because you have done all the heavy lifting and I just (laughs) have to steward the conversation. But here's how it starts. Everybody, are we supposed to prepare the child for the road or the road for the child? Are we supposed to prepare kids to be strong, to tackle whatever life throws at them? Or maybe we're supposed to smooth out the difficulties that kids are going to encounter so they can have a smooth life. Do we prepare the child for the road or the road for the child? Mm -hmm. This is the subtitle of a book that came out in 2018 by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, and it's called The Coddling of the American Mind. And it caused quite a stir back then. I know you were probably the third person in the country to read it. Yeah. <laughs> I finally had the time to make it through it. <laughs> but uh, really, the premise of this book, and both of us read it and loved it. Yeah. Uh, I read your underlines, which was great. Um, but that our culture, we're living in an era where our culture has created certain untruths that are accepted by so many people and deemed like we can't do life without them, but actually they're detrimental and their untruth. So Ben, I thought what we could do together for our listening community is talk about what those untruths are that especially younger generations are buying into and then talk about what it means for and how do we get here, but then really, uh, where do we go from here? Yeah. And I think this is super important because, I mean, just the question that you asked that the entire book is trying to answer is, do you prepare the child for the road or the road for the child? And so if you're listening right now and you're, well, I'm not a parent or I'm past that parenting stage, like this isn't just a parenting thing. It's not also, it's it's not just an employer right. thing because, and it is an employer thing, but it's not just one because you are employing these people. You're working alongside these, but we all need to hear or at least read in parts this book because this is an American thing. This is a societal mm-hmm. thing. And Western we're, even. Yeah. We're dealing with this in every facet that we get of, of our lives. When we, with the people that we're working alongside, when we go to the grocery store, uh, when we take our kids to school, so much of our lives is filled with this, do you prepare the child for the road or the road for the child? And so the, our authors here kind of, they hand us three great untruths of our society, things that we have held on to. Uh, they phrase it this way, untruths that culture has created along the way that are deemed necessary and true, but in reality are detrimental in lives. And they give us three. And the first one is the untruth of fragility. Ooh. With the tagline, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Which is exactly the opposite of what I learned growing up. Yeah. Okay. So the, the, un, the, the untruth of fragility, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Yep. Okay. And so the premise here is that people, specifically children, are fragile and must be treated as such. That's the untruth. Now, what's interesting is most of us will go, that's crazy. And we've seen our kids, they, we've seen them fall. Like I've got Harper, she just turned 10. The amount of times that she's fallen and hit her head on our coffee table, like <laughs> I know for a fact, she's not all that fragile. But what's interesting is I think as they get older, we start to kind of lose sight of that and we start to look at them as a little fragile. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of this has come up from, as they recall, the rise of safetyism. And so what that is, is uh, about the 1950s, when people thought of safety, they 
only thought of physical safety. But this problem that's commonly known as concept creep, the idea, we all know this, that when you have an idea and you have a concept, it can over time kind of change and lose its meaning or change its meaning. That, by the, that happens with safetyism. And by the 1990s, safety began to mean both physical and emotional safety. Emotional safety, which this is, is a, a big deal. Concept. Yep. Mm-hmm. So by the time we make it to the early 2000s, trauma became defined as, quote, anything experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful. Hmm. This is a big jump yeah. because yeah. harm now gets redefined as not just something physical that's happened to you, but by something emotional. Now, there's a good side of that. Absolutely. But it also starts changing when emotional harm is just how you feel it may not be based in reality but you feel harmed you feel hurt so you were there that's problematic and so by the early 2000s safety became sacred and safety became a culture belief system in which safety has become a sacred value that's what safetyism is and i don't think i have to explain much more than that because we just walked through covid Right. And we saw that really just right <laughs> in front of know? our faces. Well, <laughs> many of us did. Oh, man. For some for better and some for worse. But so the consequ- here's the consequences of safetyism. Ultimately, we, creation, we, we can quickly create an idol of safety where it becomes the focus of, of our lives. Like we end up losing sight of all those other good things in our, in our culture because those are all risks to take. And we need to ultimately jump on to safety. And so it's equating emotional discomfort with physical danger. That's a scary thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it gets us into an intolerance of other viewpoints. Because when safety is all that matters, protecting yourself and your viewpoint and your way of life and the way that you do things is what matters. Mm. So, And that's why, you know, even on university campuses, the rise of safe places. Yeah. And not, not because, like we all get you, you want to light the sidewalks at night so that yeah. it's safe to walk home. But a, a safe place is where, so that when someone engages uh, a viewpoint or an opinion or a roommate or a dorm mate, yeah. that is saying something they don't like, they can go somewhere to a safe place because it's emotional harm yep. is what people are talking about these days. They yeah, and so they're, safetyism. they're not saying that it's bad to try to keep your kids safe. Like, right. look, I bring up Harper Good. at 10 months, I mean, 10 months old. Like, You're not dropping her on the table. No, <laughs> and we put all those little things that drive me crazy in yeah. all the outlets because it takes me five minutes to get one off and plug, plug something mm-hmm. in because it's for her safety. But when we start reducing safety from the physical danger all the way down to her personal like feelings of just whether they're based in reality or not, that's where the trouble and that's where the problem can come in. And I think because so often my feelings aren't based in reality at the beginning. Yeah. They have to get there. Yep. So it's an interesting thing. Yep. Now listen, bef- oh my goodness, sorry. Before we go on to um, uh, emotion, uh, untruth number two, yeah. I'd like to go back even before the first one and say, now, Ben, what makes something an untruth? What mm. makes something like, why did they pick the three things that we're going to talk about? Yeah, which yeah. We talked about the first one. So as I mean, it's just worth mentioning, you're right. And I kind of jumped ahead before we, we talked about this, but anyways, if we're going to call something untruth, we need to know why it is. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately it's something that contradicts ancient wisdom. Okay. I mean, again, we all know that safety matters. But when you make it everything and you lose sight of being able to be just a part of society, there's an issue there. The second part is that it contradicts modern psychological research on well-being. 
So this isn't just that's what big. what we've all what we've always known or what we've always th- thought we've known. This is like modern psychological research is showing us, and that actual well-being is not saying let's let's bubble wrap everything, but. Let's bubble wrap some stuff and then keep pushing them out the door as they're learning these new activities and figuring out how to be safe themselves. Right. I mean, we all ate dirt when we were kids because we were playing in the mud. It didn't kill us. Yeah. But it sure sometimes made us sick. You're right. (laughs) And then the third thing is that it harms the individuals and communities who embrace it. So in the book, they talk about many of the consequences, yeah, of just neighborhoods and individuals and communities that begin to embrace this untruth. And they, they talk about that in a lot of, for each one of the mm-hmm. untruths. And we'll, we kind of yeah. talk about them briefly, but mm-hmm. yeah, the consequences are real. No, I think that's great because if we're going to say, hey, there's three untruths out there that Haidt and Lukianoff are talking about, well, what defines an untruth? Simple. Contradicts ancient wisdom, contradicts modern psychological research on well-being, and harms the individual and the community yeah. who embrace it. Those are that. Oh, okay. Now I know it's an untruth yeah, instead yeah. of just a new idea. All right. So number one, the untruth of fragility, the rise of safetyism, where safety is yeah. it. Safetyism. Let's go on to the second untruth as they unpack it. And and I think these are maybe a little bit longer. The second and third one might take yeah, a little but longer. I'll try to make it a little quicker. Uh, that way we no can rush. jump through it. So the, the the second untruth is the untruth of emotional reasoning. And so the kind of tagline here is always trust your feelings. Oh, that's going to end well. Yeah. (laughs) And so the premise here is that emotions are trustworthy. They're reliable and objective. Therefore, we should act out of our emotions. So historical philosophy is pretty much against this anyways. But historically, it's the idea that emotion is a byproduct of experience, not the intended product. So experience then filtered, processed, and understood by the mind then determines the merit, the value, and the importance of the experience. Hmm. So foundational to historic philosophy is this idea that emotions are not to be trusted. They're always compelling, but not always reliable. Hmm. I mean, isn't it true that many times we've felt things, we've thought things that seems so certain and seems so true in the moment. And then later we go, oh, I really missed the mark. Yeah. And so the, the fear here is so many people out, out of the get-go, we experience these things, we have these emotions, and we treat them as truth, and we treat them as fact. And oftentimes they're not. And there's a danger there. So uh, really, they're one of the major, uh, to kind of skip ahead just a bit, mm-hmm. one of the, the biggest places where we've seen the consequence of this that our authors reference several times is that there was this major, due to concept creep, as we had talked about before, uh, talked about before uh, that there was a professor at Columbia University released an article that promoted the concept of this thing called microaggressions. Most of us have probably heard of these uh, at some different level yep. by now. Yeah that reduced uh, kind of hostility to anything that happens, whether intentional or or unintentional. And so here's what that really means. It was a shift from intent to impact. Hmm. So here's, here's at layman's terms what that means. We all know if so, if somebody kills somebody else, if they do it intentionally with intent, that's first degree murder. But if they're in the car or if wherever and it accidentally happens, 
that goes down a couple degrees, right? Yeah. Probably the manslaughter or wherever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's a difference between intent and impact. Impact is one way or another, the person died. And so something needs to happen, right? Yeah. But intent is whether or not you meant to do it. And so when this article came out, it was a radical shift for people because it started taking away from the importance being on the intent to just simply the impact. That it doesn't matter if you meant to do it or not, you did it, and so you have to pay all the consequences for it. Mm -hmm. So, a couple examples that they give you, like historically guilt has been determined by intent, as I was just saying, example, Bob tries to kill Maria and fails, though Bob failed to kill Maria, the impact, he tried to kill her, that's the intent. By 2010, there was a clear shift in the mindset of guiltiness and wrongdoing. So Maria accidentally kills Bob by consensually kissing him after eating a peanut after eating peanut butter. <laughs> she has committed no offense if she had no idea he was deathly allergic to peanuts. No intent, but a very large impact. Mm. There is a difference. So guilt or wrongdoing measured by impact instead of measured by yeah. the intent. So. There began, as we started that shift, the shift from intent to impact began the route where people are accountable, not for the decisions they made, but the impact and outcomes that those decisions will have, often far outside the control of the individual's control. So one of the reasons why this gets so bad is it's, it's almost like tort law in a way. It's like how far out can you go before, like where you're still having to pay the consequences for it in some ways. And so that's where it gets really iffy and really, so people were getting stuck with having to pay these consequences for things that happened years and years later hmm. and things that were completely outside of their control and they were still having to pay the cost. Does that make sense? Right. And linking it to the microaggressions yeah. concept that arose uh, is, it, it, again, emotional reasoning, always trust your feelings, this idea of microaggressions, this idea that wrongdoing isn't just because you meant to be a jerk, but because you, uh, you said something that was perceived as, as harmful, and instead of it being a simple, gosh, that really hurt my feelings, oh, yeah. I did not mean that at all, I'm so sorry, it became more of a, that person always trusting their feelings, saying, well, they meant to hurt me or they have hurt me and they need to pay. Or it just becomes this, this unending cycle yeah. of suspicion and, and um, division. Yeah, and so when you actually say something that hurts someone's feelings, you haven't just hurt their feelings, you've, uh, you've abused them. Mm. And because what you do to their emotions, I mean, as we start adding up all these untruths, mm-hmm. you've done to them. And now that there is a reality to that, right? Right. right. Because like there's such a thing as emotional abuse. Yeah, but and that's not that's every student in a college freshman class is an emotional abuser. Yeah, is being abused. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so there's a bunch of consequences of emotional hmm. reasoning. Yeah. And so one of them is just that we begin to centralize ourselves as the objective norm or standard. So the way our positions, our beliefs, our political stances, our agendas. That's mm. the right way. And we're going to see it here in a minute, how that mm. becomes a major untruth. Right. Uh, and that becomes the bedrock of it. Because uh, I, I think I had forgotten to actually say Everything goes back to feelings. Yeah. Oh, yeah, go ahead. And that, I mean, so all of these build on one another. Like, these yeah. aren't just completely separate. And that's why they've created this almost cohesion of untruthfulness. Uh, and so what that does is when everyone thinks that they're right, it devalues the exchange of ideas. One, because if I automatically think I'm right, I'm automatically most likely think you're wrong. Mm. And now when we reduce uh, disagreement as possible abuse, 
now I'm terrified to disagree with you right. because I don't want to abuse you. Yeah. And I don't want to be abused. Well, and you can't, yeah, exactly. And you can't hurt or offend because that is abuse. Yep. Okay. And then one of the last ones is that of just emotional dishonesty where experience matters more than facts and testimonies. Hmm. When it doesn't really matter what they did, but it's how I felt. Hmm. Well, you can, your emotions, though may be true, absolutely, can often differ from what was actually intended. The impact may change from what was intended. Those matter. Yeah. Well, always trust your feelings. Okay. That's untruth number two, the uh, untruth of emotional reasoning. And untruth number one, fragility. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Well, let's go on to the last untruth that, that uh, they talk about in coddling. The untruth of us versus them. Yep. Life is a battle between good people and evil people. Dot, dot, dot. And I'm a good people. <laughs> I don't know about you, but... Yeah. So us versus them. The untruth is that the whole world is made up of us versus them. All right. Talk to us. Yeah. So there's, there's been a, actually a ton of studies done on kind of this us versus them mentality. And it seems like our hearts. Uh, now, they would argue that it's more evolution. We would argue that it's simply just more of a sin, sin thing, right? Yeah, uh, that our hearts and our minds are stuck and always just wanting to run to a very tribalistic hmm. mentality. Hmm. The human mind is prepared and charged for tribalism. And so they argue it as tribalism is our evolutionary endowment for banding together to prepare for intergroup conflict. Uh, again, I'm ready to take them on. We're going to yeah. do this together. And so the idea here is, yeah, when you find people who think and sound and look like you, you're right. So let's all be together and it's safer for the group. So in tribal mode, we seem to go blind. It's funny, like the amount of evidence that's on this. In tribal mode, we seem to go blind to arguments and information that challenge our team or narrative. So when we go into that tribal mode, we get protective of our values. We've all had this. Where some, or we hold something, someone disagrees with us and we get really defensive. And we can't, doesn't matter how good their argument is, we can't hear them. And intergroup conflict inflames tribalism, and people desperately seek signs or affirmations that reveal which team another person is on. So, That's true. Because when you get tribal, and again, we've all been tribal at times. Well, that church down the street is just yeah. evil. No, the, no, I'm kidding. Yeah, we, and so what happens when we get tribal yeah. is we begin defining people by their tribes, not by... I don't know, the Imago Day, maybe their actual value is who they are and human, like, or even what they offer. We go, oh, you're a red, oh, you're blue. Oh, you go to that church. Oh, you send your kids to that school. Oh, you cheer for the dark blue team. <laughs> yeah. So the, then there's kind of this big question. What happens when you train students to see others and themselves as members of distinct groups defined by race, gender, and other socially significant factors, and you tell them that those groups are eternally engaged in a zero-sum conflict over status and resources. That's the question that so many of our kids, so many of my generation well, have been asked, mm -hmm. and we've been kind of stuck into of having to figure out, well, what's the answer? And what the answer that many of us have come up with is a tragic one. It's identity politics. That's where we're living today, isn't it? Yep. 
And so there are two veins of identity politics. Yeah, I thought this was great. Yeah. The common humanity identity politics. So uh, a great example of this is Dr. King repeatedly used the metaphor of family, referring Mm -hmm. to people of all races and religions as brothers and sisters. It's helpful. Mm -hmm. King's approach made it clear that his movement would not destroy America. It would repair it and reunite it. It's often appealed to love and shared moral values. So instead of shaming and demonizing opponents, Dr. King humanized them and then yes. re- and then relentlessly appealed to their humanity. I, I think that is absolutely not demonizing, but humanizing. Yeah. Someone who disagrees with you. This is this is absolutely what's missing today. Yep. And here's the problem is we often find ourselves more in the the second one, the common enemy identity politics. We don't yeah, see that's true. We don't see the other side as a potential ally or potential friend. We see them as a common enemy. It's like, hey, Mm -hmm. instead of us rallying around the things that we have that we hold together, the common enemy identity politics is, hey, we may have we may differ on all these other things, but we got this one thing. We hate that guy. We hate that color. We hate people who made this choice. And I don't think I even have to go very far in this, but that is tragic. It's the Bedouin proverb, uh, I against my brother, and I and my brothers against my cousins, and I and my brothers and my cousins against the world. <laughs> uh, we have a tons of examples of this. I mean, it's Nazi Germany against the Jews, and for the Third Reich, it's, it's the United States and the Allies against the Nazis, and the United States against the communist regimes of the Cold War. You know, we have a common enemy that often unites us. Gotcha. So, so common humanity identity politics or common enemy identity politics. First one's yeah. good. Second one, it's not so good. Yeah. And so we have a ton of examples of this all over our politics yeah. right now. Yeah. Right-leaning, I mean, neo-Nazi and white nationalist groups began rallying around a shared hatred, not just mm-hmm. of Jews, but also of blacks, feminists, and SJWs. Yeah. yeah. Social justice warriors. Yep. And then even, I mean, tons of other examples, but also left-leaning as well. The 27 opinion essay by a Latino student at Texas State University entitled, quote, Your DNA is an abomination. The premise of it was whiteness is a construct used to perpetuate a system of racist power. So left-leaning organizations, alongside a resurgence of Marxism, began adopting and implementing Marxist power structure ideologies. So those are oppressor and uh, oppressed Oppressed and oppressors, yeah. Structures, yeah. So by the way, you know, I think of this when you're talking about common enemy identity politics, which is what we're talking about, right-leaning, left-leaning. You know, we all lived through the Trump era, and he loved rhetorically to uh, paint people as enemies and the mainstream media and the, you know, your fake news and whatever. Left-leaning, another example is, you know, I'm Canadian, and this, uh, this... winter with the trucker convoy coming across Canada and parking in the middle of the national capital. And the prime minister, Trudeau, called them misogynists and homophobes and xenophobes. Mm. And and instead of talking to them, he just painted them into a corner rhetorically. And it's exactly that. He's just turning them into an enemy. And so both sides, you know, you're seeing this today. Like he, you know, in the book, they're talking about a Texas state from way away. But you're seeing this, you know, just in, in different countries, uh, as well as here, left, right. And it's just so sad that it's left and right, <laughs> you know, yeah. people who can bridge the gap. And what's funny is, like, it's a good reminder that common humanity, identity politics, and common enemy identity politics are both extremely effective. Right. But the second one's easier. 
The second one's easier. Yep. It's easy to it's easy to paint an enemy. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you don't disagree. You just don't have to paint them as an enemy. Anyway, yeah. I, I'm getting I'm getting to the application. I'm always trying to be. Well, and so as look, there are a bunch of consequences to the us versus them uh, untruth. And so one of those is that we begin to define people by absolutes. Mm. They're either with me or against me. We've all yeah. thought that probably at some point. Mm-hmm. They're either the enemy or they're my friend. Yeah. We we also misconstrue differences of opinion, belief, or understanding to antagonism. Right. So just because we differ doesn't mean you hate me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we always need that reminder. Because, I mean, true. even if we are not identity politics kind of people, we don't want to be, we can still feel that when people differ or when people are, don't agree with me that they, they, do, they dislike you. Yeah. Yep. It's hard. Uh, another is just the focus on the differences that we have instead of commonalities we share. Mm-hmm. It's so much easier to look at all the things we don't have in common than the, honestly, the many that we do. And that's just down the, the line of the ladder. And then a bunch of just different consequences that fall along with kind of our, often the flavor of the month of identity politics, of reducing people's identity to oppressors or oppressed, just reducing people's Value. Value in Life. general, yeah. 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 Uh, and so what often happens because of all of these is we begin to suppress free speech and the sharing of ideas, which hmm. just inflames tribalism more. Mm-hmm. Because you, be, you kind of create your own echo chamber then, and you're only hearing more of your people, and then you go, oh, okay, so that, say I'm right, because obviously that's fallen away, because I'm right. And so it just happens. Yeah. And there's a lot, a lot of consequences. Yeah. Well, us versus them, good people and bad people and nary the twain shall meet or whatever. Yeah. That's, that's a great untruth of what a lot of people are living into. And they don't realize it. it's not that anyone signs up for this and you get a card in the mail and say, ah, I got the three great untruths. It's just, this is the cultural zeitgeist of where we are. The untruth of us versus them. Life's a battle between good people and evil people. And we always identify ourselves as good people. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> untruth of emotional reasoning. Always trust your feelings. They're always right. That's just an untruth, but that's what people are living by. And then the first untruth of fragility. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. So we got to promote safety at all costs. Okay. Those are the three great untruths. Let's just talk super quickly for a second. How did we get here? Can you do that in a second? And then let's talk about where do we go from here? Because all of us are living in our culture so, you know, we probably could do a whole podcast on how we got here. Yeah, absolutely. But how would you say it in like one or two points? Yeah, I give you a couple points. Uh, one of the biggest ones is this thing they call the polarization effect. And again, we've all experienced this. We've all seen this at different levels of politics and just in our lives and in general. But that our political world has gotten more and more polarized and extreme. Mm-hmm. It hasn't gotten closer and closer because we found more and more reasons to disagree mm-hmm. and we found more and more common, il- common enemies. And that enemy seems to be one, the other side. Right. And so the further we go down that polarization cycle, the worse things you're gonna get because you can't, it's, it's so much harder to find common ground with someone you hate yeah. or the person you, when you label them as the enemy. Yeah. That, it just becomes unbelievably problematic. I think another one is that very quickly, they talk about this a good bit, that levels of anxiety and depression across the, uh, from my generation and down 
has skyrocketed and for various different reasons. And we talked about this, I mean, a year or two ago in an iGen book, but that just levels of anxiety and depression are rampant through the iGen generation, through even millennials in general. And that that is absolutely affecting and changing the way that, that people are seeing the world. It's hard to take steps. It's hard to move. It's hard to get out of your bubble and out of your tribe when you're so crippled and debilitated right. by depression and anxiety. Right. Hard, and they get a whole bunch of other ones. Above yeah. Into, yeah. Boy, and I know we did a we did an episode with Dr. Joan Perry on anxiety. And yep. we keep saying, boy, we need to have her again because we got such great feedback on that. Yeah, because yeah. this is a world filled with anxiety and it certainly hasn't tamped down. Yeah. After COVID, I, I it's just true. said something. That, well, okay. So where, where do we go from here? What's a couple of thoughts? Because again, we're not, this is not a parenting podcast, but what, you know, in terms of, uh, well, do we prepare the child for the road or the road for the child? But our coworkers who are younger than us or our neighbors moving down the street or people in church or in our house church, or how do we, you know, Ben, how am I supposed to work with you? Yeah. <laughs> It really, I'm just taking all your notes of things, your wish list for me. Uh, I, I think the first step, they kind of give you like a three-point plan of, uh, but I, I'm going to steal the first one. And it's, we need wiser kids. And uh-huh. so again, this can sound like a parenting thing, but it's not. What it ultimately means is we need to take the people who are of these generations, a millennial and on, and just take the truths that we know about them and actually go, look, these are realities, whether they have, maybe it's by their own just struggles or maybe their own choosing. But when it's a generational thing, we you can kind of look at it and go, well, it's not just them. It's also an environmental thing for them. We need to look at them and go, how do we again take what we know of them and what we know of the road and not just pr- try to go- do bulldoze parenting as we were mm-hmm. talking about and, and prepare the road for them, but go, how do we help do the hard work of preparing you for that road. And the problem, and we all know this, and we all want to do this, but the hard thing is one, it takes a lot of time. It takes time, like getting them around adults, like actual mentorship, like getting them in relationships and helping them just kind of push forward. This is something I think that we as a church do really well here, that whether it's from just a youth group and life on life groups or meeting on Sunday nights or uh, house churches or just getting people plugged in, the Millennials and then on, even to, to iGen, have very quickly kind of created a hierarchy of needs in some ways, mm. and community often falls further and further up, or fall pushes up that hierarchy, like or we down. It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which way am I well, going on the hierarchy? I'm, I'm jumping between hierarchies and <laughs> and then pyramids here. So, uh, so it becomes less and less important. Okay, they need it because less in their minds for so many. In the iGen generation, safety is such an importance. And here's the thing to remember, and I have found this to be true in my life as well, that oftentimes I pull back from situations, not because I think someone's going to hurt me or someone's going to say the wrong thing, because every situation is an opportunity to mess something up, Mm -hmm. for something to go wrong. And so many people are, so many of our students are in that world right now. And so it's easier to just communicate online. Mm -hmm. If we just have facts, we can just text each other. We can send you a video. We can get to know each other that way. 
Because I can I can make sure that video is great before I send it. Yep. Kind and of you get all the right filters and you figure out how to just how to phrase it. It's everything's perfect. It's fascinating. Even in the COVID um, 2020, where the lockdowns and then coming out of lockdowns and then gathering together and then how do we do it? And when was the masks and when were the sp- yep. s- spacing and all that kind of stuff? All those questions. I, I mean, I'm not that great of a social commentary guy. Like, I, I don't know all this stuff, but it was amazing to me looking back that more millennials and youngers, not not kids, but but in the sort of 20s yeah. and early 30s, they seemed a lot more nervous than the 50s and 60-year-olds. Mm. Isn't that interesting? It is and, interesting. And they were lo- a, lo- a good number of friends I have, they were a little bit longer to come back into society. And, you know, the 55-year-old like, well, I'm ready to go, baby. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I don't know. It's yep. just fascinating. It's funny. Uh, yeah. So, um, wiser kids, kind of pushing them out there and enjoying, enjoying them. Um, and, and you know, and this is good for me because we just dropped our oldest at college. So now we're saying, uh oh, did we prepare the child for the road ahead of him, or did we do too much coddling by accident? Because we never yeah. tried to. Um, but you know, doing everything we can to not let them live by those untruths. Is there anything, is, is there any other, like, especially thinking of coworkers, and it's one thing, you know, to think of, think of our kids, but anything thinking of, um, you know, how do you, as a, as a 50 year old, how do you talk to a 27 year old who just started at your company and maybe does things just a l- little bit differently? I mean, how- yeah, I think a good thing to remember is that, uh, just remember like, of the ne- of many of these generations, including millennials, iGen and on, right? That they're in no hurry. They're internet focused. They often uh, they're very inclusive. They like having people yes, around them. Yes. Uh, but they're often insecure, mm. and so they're often not going to take some of the risks or some of the jumps or some of the like the. Sometimes yeah. they're going to be slow to do things. And it's not because they're lazy. It's not because they don't want to. It's because they're a little insecure. And so you've if you hired some of these people, uh, which if you've hired anyone in the last couple of years, you probably have, what often gets labeled as laziness is really just insecurity or hmm. fear of messing something up. It's a good insight. Yeah. And so I think one of the ways that we can often help this generation, so again, possibly even me. So Jason, this is for you, for me. Uh, <laughs> for your annual, yeah. oh, let's do the annual review uh, yeah. right here. Uh, <laughs> huge raises, I'm just yeah. kidding. Uh, I think, so this is for parents, this is for, uh, I mean, leaders of students, this is for mm. just any one of these, gener- like bosses, that yeah. we need to help iGeners, we need to help the next, these generations experience and practice independence as often as they can, because so much of the road has been prepared for them that when they start having to be prepared, they often find, we often find ourselves falling just a tad short. And so that can look like for parents just giving them little responsibilities around the house to do, hey, you're in charge of this. Now, don't put them in charge of finances, but you yeah, say, just hey, give them chores look, the that, trash goes yeah, out every yeah. Monday. And hold them accountable without shaming them. Yep. You know. And so the reality, and here's what that is, and this is the thing that we apply. What it is, is giving people, it's giving these kids, giving these students a safe place to learn and to fail because Mm -hmm. they, we all need that. Now that can be a hard thing to do and, but it's worth trying and worth attempting to do. 
Well, because none of us, um, uh, younger people who are who haven't known a different culture, and then older people or parents who have known a different culture and find themselves in this one, none of us want to live in untruths because yeah. that's not living in reality. So all of us want to overcome these and. Interestingly, the book is written 2018, we're 2022, almost 2023. I think we're seeing these untruths begin to unravel. Yeah. And and I actually can't wait for the follow-up book yeah. to say, hey, the, uh, the these three great untruths have, have gone away or have diminished, maybe been replaced with other ones, but also we've seen truth, because you cannot hold truth down. Hmm. It's why you never start lying, because you can't tell enough lies. Yep. Truth always comes out and untruths never last. Um, so anyway, as we do this, this is, this is super helpful, Ben. This is, this is really good how I'm going to manage you from now on, <laughs> but how we do this. And I think you hit the nail on the head a se- about five minutes ago when you said something about at church and we have different mm. generations together. I think that's the blessing and the benefit of every body of believers that's healthy yeah. is that you get from uh, from grandparents to newborns in the same group, and they're not yep. just your family. Like you, you come here and have seven sets of grandparents, as it were, yep. because there's people here who love you because you love Jesus, or your family does. And yep. even if you haven't met him yet, but yeah. I, I know I think this is. I think that's why God's idea of of a local church is one of the saving graces for all of society. I'm glad he knows what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> sure do. Hey, thanks for doing the hard work of uh, reading and digesting, distilling for us. Everybody, I hope these have been helpful. Um, we we just want to help everyone grow a little bit more thinking Christians, engaging God's grace in the world. So thanks for joining us, and we'll see you the next time. This is a ministry of Grace Fellowship Church in Kinston, North Carolina. Visit gracekinston.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram.